church, we have a merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. And he delights when his children come to him with their needs. And he delights when his people assemble as a body, as a gathering. And so it only makes sense that we as his gathering would together go before him and present our needs. So would you now pray with me as we pray a prayer of petition? Almighty God, we come before you, a good God, and we bring our requests and our needs to you, O God. We thank you that you listen to us and that you hear our requests. Father, we come on behalf of those in our body today who are hurting and who are walking through trials and suffering. Oh God, would you be with those who are hurting? Would you strengthen them? Would you build them up in your spirit? Would you give them the grace to walk faithfully through the trials that they are facing? Father, we pray for our brother Desmond as his cancer has returned. We pray for Joan as he, she cares for her husband. We pray that you would bring healing to Desmond's body. Father, we ask that you would give him all manner of strength to trust in faith the promises of your word. God, be with our brother, we pray. Father, we think not only of our local body here, but the fact that you are a God over all nations and all peoples, and we praise you for that. Father, we pray for Joe and Jane Martinez, missionaries that we support in, in Peru. Father, we pray for their children, for Christian and Micah and Eliana. Father, as their country right now is in turmoil, as they are in their homes on lockdown, as there are, is unrest and protests across their country, Father, would you be with these dear workers and would you supply all of their needs? Would you sustain them by your spirit, O oh God? Father, as they minister to the church there, many who have lost their jobs, many who are in crisis economically, who don't have what they need to provide for their families, God, would you provide for them? Father, would you guide Joe and Jane as they think about staying or leaving, as they think about caring for the flock? Father, would you build up your church there, we pray. Father, we also pray for our country here as we think about the nation that we live in. You, in your word, instruct us as a people to pray for our rulers and kings and for all who are in authority. And so we pray today, O oh God, for our president, for our Congress, for our Senate, for our leaders, O oh God. We pray that you would allow them to govern in such a way that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives that we could be Christians here in this country that would reflect our ultimate king, King Jesus, who has our primary allegiance. We pray that you would work and bless our country, work in and bless our country, we pray. Father, now as your people, we come to your word and we need to hear from you. Father, I ask that you would work through me. I pray that you would give me the words of how to speak, I pray that you would give us ears to listen carefully to your word. Father, I pray that you would work in this hour, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Well, there are probably about 180, maybe 200 people in this room right now. And I'm just guessing about 200 different paths of where this week will lead for you. Each of us have a different path in front of us, a variety of places that we'll end up, variety of situations that we will find ourselves in. I wonder where you'll be throughout this week. Opportunities, conversations, moments of choice that you will face, all incredibly different. And yet, I would like to make a prediction which is true of every person in this room this morning. That's right, unless the Lord comes back, I predict that it is true of you that you will face temptation. You will face, regardless of your station in life, where you're at, what you're doing, you will face an invitation to sin. It's true. It may be subtle for you, almost imperceptible as you quietly and quickly think through a decision about doing right from wrong, as you quickly need discernment to sift what is good, or maybe it will be a fierce and long battle this week with a specific sin where your conscience throws down a stake or lays out an anchor and holds you firm across the, the waves of temptation. Or perhaps even scarier, you might have a conscience that is seared, that is hardened in an area of your life. And so you don't even realize that you are being invited into sin. You don't even realize that you're being tempted. And the sin is almost instantaneous, without reflection, without pause. R regardless of what it looks like, I guarantee you this week you will be tempted. And I wonder, are you ready? Are you aware? Are you doing what our Savior commands us, to watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation? Do you take temptation seriously enough? Children often underestimate danger. All the parents in this room could probably put together a list of stories that we have where we find our child on the precipice of disaster, whether it's walking into a room and seeing the baby by the outlet, or looking outside and seeing a child on the edge of a pool, or seeing our, our child wander into traffic and running out to stop them, and not realizing the imminent danger they are walking into. Well, what about temptation? Do you underestimate the danger of what is coming into your life. Listen to John Owen in his book, Temptation, Resisted, and Repulsed. It's a great little devotional book, very edifying. This is what he writes. He says, some men think that they can play in the hole of a viper and not be stung. They think that they can touch tar and not become dirty or take fire into their clothes and not be burnt. But they are greatly mistaken. Let no man then pretend to fear sin that does not fear temptation also. He who does not truly hate the fruit, he does not truly hate the fruit, 
who delights in the root. By the way, I have two copies of this. I will be standing in the back for the first two people that promised me you'll actually read the book. It's free, yours for the taking. Just meet me in the back. Friends, if it's true that you will certainly face temptation this week, and if it's true that you might be likely to underestimate the danger you are facing, then think of how important it is to see faithfulness modeled in temptation. How important is it to see what it looks like to perfectly turn away from sin every time? It's, it's almost like you're a banker who's told you're about to receive counterfeit money this week. And it would be wise for you then to stare long and hard at the actual bill, the authentic currency first, so that you can establish its shape and character in your mind so that when the counterfeit comes, you recognize it quickly. Well, today we are looking carefully at an authentic banknote. We are looking at today's passage, which highlights Christ's faithfulness in temptation. Today's passage highlights Christ's perfection as he is being invited to sin. And what we will see is not only how he is faithful, but we will also see the importance of his unique faithfulness as the Son of God. His faithfulness matters for us. So, let's think about these two ideas. First, we'll answer, how was Jesus faithful? That's my first point today. Secondly, we'll answer, why was Christ's faithfulness important? We'll spend most of our time on the first point as we walk through the text. We're just going to read through this passage and study it verse by verse. But then we'll end with a few moments together on the second question together. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 4, where Bruce has already read. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14. Bruce has already read it, so I'm just merely going to work through it as we talk through the text. We, we jump in and we see in verses 1 and 2 here the setting of this temptation. Notice there that Jesus is returning from being baptized in the Jordan, and he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Whatever is about to happen to him is clearly divinely arranged. He was filled with the Spirit, and so he goes out, and for 40 days— he was being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing. He was fasting. It seems that God was supernaturally sustaining his body to go without food, and yet he was still human. The text tells us in verse 2, he was hungry. The picture here is that the suffering of the temptation was severe. It came when Jesus was physically weak when he was alone, when he was off in a desolate place and a difficult place, and it happened over a long stretch of time. This was the setting for Christ's temptation. Well, how was Jesus faithful? In the first temptation, we see Jesus refused to trust in bread to satisfy his needs. Look at how the devil comes to him in verse 2. We read there, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, Command this stone to become bread. Use your power to feed your appetite. See, the problem with this temptation is not in the eating of bread. Rather, Jesus here is being tempted to use his unique power as the Son of God 
to meet his own needs. We know this partly by the way that he responded. He, we see there in verse 4, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This passage here looks back to how God provided manna for the Israelites and explains how God let the Israelites hunger. He let them hunger, and then he fed them so that they would learn to not depend on bread only, but to live depending on God's word. Well, Satan's temptation is, at this point, reminding Jesus of this miracle of manna. Hey, you did that once, Jesus. Why don't you do it again? Do it for yourself this time. Make bread and satisfy what you need right now. Well, Jesus then recognizes that his hunger and his humanity were to showcase his dependence on God. And so his divine power was, was not meant to be used for his own self-gratification. His hunger, like the Israelites, was meant to show a dependence on God and on God's word. And in this, Jesus is faithful. What about us? Well, in one sense, this temptation is unique to Jesus. It's meant to show Christ's right use of his power as God's son. But in another sense, Christ here is modeling for us a dependence on God's provision, a freedom from a pursuit of self-gratification. So let me ask you, what is most important in your life? Living by God's word or gratifying your desires, your appetites? This is so different from the prevailing values of our day, is it not? Our world is constantly telling us that our values should be shaped by our appetites, not by the word of God. Our world says you should have the power to, to feed your own appetites, to define your own reality, to turn a stone into a piece of bread, to define your own identity, to satisfy whatever desires you have. I imagine in the rooms this size, many of you have good friends or coworkers who are being swept up in worldviews that say this very thing. Maybe even some of you are. Let me just say very respectfully today that if God created you, and since God created you, he, you were meant to define all things not by your desires or appetites, but according to God's word. If your creator has made you hungry, don't twist that appetite. Instead, seek to have it satisfied. And fundamentally, he has given you hunger that you may know that you are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, maybe think on this question today. Will your authority be in what God's word says or in what you desire? And where are you tempted to switch that? Maybe that's a good question for your lunch conversation after the service. Where are you tempted to feed a desire instead of relying on what God's word has ordained? Well, Jesus was faithful to trust God's word. He was faithful to not use his power to gratify his own desires. 
Secondly, how is Christ faithful? Number two, Jesus refused to worship falsely. This is what we see in the second temptation. The devil takes Jesus up. Matthew tells us that this phrase is talking about him going up on top of a high mountain. And he makes another offer. Look at verses 5 and through 7. We read that the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Imagine this. Jesus being shown by the devil, apparently in some type of miraculous vision in a moment of time, a view of all the authority and all the glory that this world has to offer. And Jesus is offered this authority, this glory, now. This temptation is based on a half-truth. Satan says, all this authority and glory have been delivered to me. Now, Scripture clearly says that Satan does have a real authority in this world. Think of 2 Corinthians 4.4. calls him the God of this world. He's had the authority to blind the minds of the unbelievers. Or Jesus, later in John 12, calls him the ruler of this world, who will one day be cast out. Satan does indeed have authority. But friends, it is a limited authority. And Satan here is talking to the limiter of his authority. He is talking to the one who gave him that authority. When he says, all authority has been delivered to me, he's talking to the one who gave it to him. The one who will one day take it away from him. As I was reflecting on this this week and just studying this passage, a tiny ant just walked across my desk in my office over here. I just instinctively reached out my thumb and stopped this microscopic ant. Friends, Christ's authority over Satan is far greater than my authority was over that ant. There is no place in this universe or in all space and time where Christ is not completely in full control. His authority is utterly complete. His authority is always unceasingly, un and Satan's authority is always unceasingly under God's authority. And so if this is true, how is this then an invitation to sin? Well, I'll get to that in a moment. Let me first say this. Learn from what Satan's doing here. Satan is suggesting a half-truth. And Satan works in the economy of lies, of counterfeit truths. Just like Eve in the garden, you remember Eve? He is offering something that is partly true, but is completely foolish. Satan is acknowledging his authority, and yet is not recognizing his limits. So next time you are tempted to sin, just stop and think about what, what half-truth are you being tempted to believe in that moment? Or maybe next time you realize you have sinned, look back on that sin and say, what, what thing did I believe that was half-true? Not fully true. This is how Satan works. So there he is on this mountain, offering authority to Christ. And what is his offer? Now we know Jesus is king. We know that he's emptied himself. And that he will have a future glory. That he will have a future throne. So what is this temptation here about? 
what could have been attractive about this offer. Well, notice what Satan is saying. Satan is offering a shortcut past the cross. Satan is offering glory without suffering. Satan is offering a throne without Gethsemane. Just think of the pain that Jesus will face. We see this later in Luke 22 in Gethsemane. When Jesus was in agony, I believe it was real agony, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, Satan is saying, you can avoid this agony and still have glory if you just will worship me. But what a foolish choice this would be. How absurd would this be to worship the devil? Satan is, is doing what he always does. He's offering a, a smooth road that avoids this type of mountain climb, but around the corner is a dead end. It's foolish. Friends, this is what temptation always is in your life. Temptation is a foolish offer of apparent glory, and it has no real promise to it. It's like a taste of sugar on the tip of your tongue that the moment you swallow turns to poison. I don't know what areas of sin you might be giving into in your life, or what areas of sin you might meet this week. Let me tell you, sin might feel right for a moment, or for an hour, or for a week, or if you're really lucky, for a couple of decades. But the, in the end, it will always lead to death. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Perhaps you remember Edmund in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. He gave into temptation as he ate the Turkish delight on the queen's sleigh. Lewis writes, Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. But his compulsive desire led him to serve a witch instead of the true king. Beloved, Jesus shows us a faithful response to this offer. Look at verse 8. We read there, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So here again, Jesus quotes from De Deuteronomy, this time from Deuteronomy 6.13. And there the point is that false worship is not a worth worthy path to ease. God's people are being called to go into the promised land, and they are told to not forget God as they go in and enjoy the land. They are not to worship false gods as they step into the ease of living in this foreign place. And Jesus models this perfect faithfulness. He will worship and serve God alone, even with the cross in view. Well, let's look at the third temptation. Look down at verse 9. There we read, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. How is Jesus faithful? Number three, he refused to put God to the test. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem now. 
in Jerusalem was the temple. He went up on the pinnacle, likely this was standing on the, the southeastern corner of the, pin, of the temple, which would have looked down off the Temple Mount. It would have been a high drop into the Kidron Valley. It would have been dangerously high. And there the devil tempts Jesus to test God's protection. Throw yourself down and show that God will protect you. The devil wants Jesus to force God's hand. He's not calling Jesus to follow God and trust him. He's calling Jesus to push God and test him. And this is sly and tricky. Did you see how he does it? It looks like Satan is calling him to believe God's word. But really, Satan is putting doubt in God's word and calling for a test. Daryl Bach says this well. He says, jumping would be unbelief masquerading as faith. The premise behind the test is that maybe God will not protect the son. Friends, obeying God proves his trustworthiness. But that is completely different than asking God to prove he's worth obeying. Notice the slyness of how the devil does this. The devil speaks using scripture. It's almost as if the devil starts to catch on to the fact that every time he speaks, Jesus is responding to temptation with scripture. And so he himself tries his hand at using scripture. Jesus has been quoting from Deuteronomy. The devil here quotes from the Psalms. Jesus has been showing the, the true meaning of the text. And the Satan here twists the meaning of the text. First point, and the, the application here is just powerful. You should memorize scripture to face temptation. But you should also understand the scripture you memorize. Kids, there's kids here in the service today. Some of you are memorizing scripture in Sunday school in Awana. This is wonderful. You should memorize scripture. But you also need to understand what you memorize. And your teachers and parents want this. If you don't understand something, you should talk to your teachers and parents about what you're memorizing. Jesus then responds in verse 12. Let's keep moving. He, he answered him and he says, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so we can, we can test our beliefs, we can test our doubts, we can test our understandings of things, but we should not test our God. God has proven himself already through his word and through his world. He needs no further test. We are called to believe and called to follow. To, to, to my non-Christian friends today, if you're hearing this and thinking about what Christians are saying let me just invite you to test your doubts without testing God. He welcomes the doubting. So he welcomes those who come to him and pray, like the man who came to Jesus in tears and said, help my, I believe, help my unbelief. He welcomes that. But he doesn't welcome someone who doubts God. We are called to believe God by his word and as we see his world. And so let me just say to you, what Christians are believing when we believe God is we are believing that God's word perfectly tells us about God. And it tells us 
how we have all sinned against God. We have done what is wrong in God's sight. And this is a, a problem of catastrophic proportions. We have sinned against God. And we deserve eternal punishment for wronging God. But the good news that, that Christians call the gospel, when Christians talk about the gospel, they're, they're talking about the good news that Jesus Christ did not leave us alone in our sin, but he came to earth, and he lived this perfect life, he died on the cross, and he rose again so that we might have eternal life. He took our sins on himself so that now anyone who will trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins will be made into a new person. We see Christ, we believe in him, and he makes us new. So let me invite you, doubt your doubts. Question your doubts. And look to how God has revealed himself in his word. Well, we see here, that Christ was faithful. But let me ask, secondly, why was this important? Why was Christ's faithfulness important? And I think this question actually gets to the heart of the passage. This question gets to why Luke put this in this account for Theophilus. Theophilus is wondering if he can be certain in these things that he's learning. And Luke puts this account of what happened to Christ here, at this place, we see why Christ's faithfulness is important for us. Number one, because we need a better Adam. We need a better Adam. Notice that last week's genealogy ended right at Adam. And Jesus comes in the, this line, in this, 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 he is a descendant of Adam in this genealogy. But he comes, and what seems to be happening is he seems to be replacing this first Adam with an Adam who was faithful. Notice the similarities. Satan comes out to meet Adam and Eve and to tempt them. And here again, Satan comes out to meet Jesus and to tempt him. Satan twisted God's word as he spoke to Adam and Eve. Here again, he twists God's word as he speaks to Jesus. Adam and Eve listened to Satan, and they misquoted God. Jesus, the better Adam, rebukes Satan and rightly quotes God's word. Jesus did what Adam couldn't do. He refused sin, and he trusted in God's word. Friends, we need a better Adam we need a new line, a new race, a new beginning. And that is what Jesus is here for us. Why is this important, number two? Because we need a better Israel. I hope you noticed this in the text as I worked through it. Did you notice how Luke was subtly but unmistakably showing that where Israel failed, Jesus Christ succeeds? Jesus is strong enough to obey. He is strong enough to lead you to obedience. Notice what we saw. We saw that Israel was being led out into the wilderness. Well, here Jesus was led out into the wilderness. And Israel went out for 40 years. Here Jesus goes out for 40 days. Israel found themselves hungry and failed many times in trusting God's provision. Jesus finds himself hungry and faithfully trusted God for his provision. 
Israel was called to worship God alone and failed. Jesus was faithful in worshiping God alone. Israel was failed by putting God to the test, we read. But here, Jesus was faithful, refusing to test God. So we're not surprised when we read in Exodus 4 that Israel was described as the Son of God, as God's firstborn Son. And here we see God's true Son perfectly obeying where Israel failed. God in Christ is bringing us a true and better Israel. He is the qualified head of his new people. He is the qualified head of the church. Lastly, why is Christ's faithfulness important? Praise God it's important because we need a sinless deliverer. Jesus Christ came to conquer sin and death and the devil. And that's what we see here. He came to satisfy God's wrath against mankind. And he can only do this if he is greater than sin. He can only do this if he is stronger than the power of sin. If you think that's not significant, just think about your own life. Just try on your own power not to sin. You all know how powerful it is. Jesus had a power that was greater than that of sin. Think of how our, our, our service today even reminds us of this. Do you remember the passage that Lauren read at, earlier in the service? He read from Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, which, which explains to us the necessity of Christ living a perfect life. And then in a minute, we'll, we'll gather down here to take the Lord's Supper together, and we'll follow Christ's command to eat the, the bread and drink the juice, reflecting on his death. And we remember that Christ's death is sufficient for us. And if his only sufficient, if his life was a perfect offering, if it was a proven obedience. So that's why Hebrews says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation to make covering for his people. For because Christ himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Then we read that Christ is the one who was tested in every respect and tempted as we were are, yet without sin. Isn't this what we just saw at the end of our passage? Look at verse 13. The passage ends saying that when the devil had ended every temptation... I wonder why that's emphasized. He departed from him until an opportune time. This is the picture that we're seeing. Jesus Christ was tested in every respect, and yet he did not sin. His perfection, his worthiness was proven. A couple weeks ago, uh, my boys and I got to go to our backyard and look up in the sky on a Sunday afternoon and watch the SpaceX rocket take off. It was taking off in Cape Canaveral. It's a clear day here in Florida. We could see it from our backyard. It was pretty cool. And as we watched this rocket take off, it, it cut through the atmosphere. It had this, all this force on it as, it as it moved up to complete its mission. And you know that before that rocket took off, it had to be perfectly tested and proven. 
every element was pushed on and prodded to make sure that that rocket could sustain the forces that were coming upon it. So to make sure that it was road ready, as it were, showing all the engineers that it had the strength that was needed. The scientists tested the rocket and they put its integrity on full display. And put it under the, the heat and the stress of trial so that it could take off and complete its mission. Well, re reaching the outer atmosphere is certainly monumental, right? But how much more is conquering sin, and conquering the devil, and conquering death? What is the kind of verified integrity that is needed for that mission? This is what we see today. Jesus is proven faithful. We see a savior. We see a deliverer, our, our perfect strength, who shows himself to be sufficiently strong, tested in every respect as we are tempted, and yet without sin. So that now, beloved, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is where your hope is this week as you face temptation. This is your, where your hope is this morning as you come and remember Christ's suffering for us. It's not in what you bring. It's what Christ has already done and freely gives you. And so, church, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus for salvation. Look to Jesus for temptation when you are weak. Look to Jesus, whose blood is proven and sufficient. He has proven to have the power to save, which is why we can sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stings. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, we will sing thy power to save. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we worship you. We praise you, O King Jesus, for your power is greater than our sin. Your power is greater to, than death and the devil. We worship you, the better Adam. We worship you, the better Israel. We worship you, our sinless deliverer. All of our hope is in you, and we glory in that. Would you accept the praises of your people? Would you accept our praises now as we lift our voices to you? Would you accept our praises this week as we live in obedience to your authority? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.